On January 20th, 1961, John Fitzgerald Kennedy stood before the nation to give his inaugural address as he prepared to take his place as the 35th president of the United States. During his address, Kennedy would give what is considered his most inspirational and iconic quote. His challenge to the country was this. He said, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. This was a call to action for the people of the United States towards service, towards serving their civic duty as citizens of this nation. But what defines service? If you were to take the definition from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it would define service as this. It says, the, quote, the occupation or function of serving, the work performed by one that simply serves. You know, we, we see this act every day of our lives, don't we? You know, when we order food at a restaurant, perhaps, we're there are a number of people who serve us at the restaurant, right? You, you arrive, the hostess greets you, they, they find a seat available, a table available, and they walk you to your table. And then you're approached by a waiter who then serves your food, takes your drink and your food order, serves you even the bill at the end. You know, when someone enters into the military, same thing happens, right? They become a service men and women who dedicate their lives to serving their country. Although these acts of service occur by both believers and unbelievers, what defines biblical service? How should a Christian serve? Tonight we will examine what it looks like to serve as one who is devoted to Christ as we look at one of the essentials that makes up the Christian life. Thank you, Dion. Let's give Dion a round of applause. Dion was not part of my practical application illustration, but he, he just happened to be here and doing that. So thank you, Dion, for that. Thank you for your service. So what are the essentials? What are the essentials? What makes up the essentials of the Christian life, you might ask? Well, the essentials are the core biblical priorities that define every Christian's life. They, they do three things. They, they strengthen our devotion to Jesus Christ. They deepen our love for God and for his people. And they cause us to grow in personal holiness. And what exactly makes up these essentials for the Christian life? Well, there are six of them. The first is Bible study, worship, prayer, fellowship, evangelism, and service, which we'll observe this evening. Our theme for tonight, theme verse for this lesson, comes from 1 Peter 4.10. Peter writes, he says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. We'll visit this verse a little bit later, but I want to ask you a couple of questions 
Now, this is rhetorical. You don't have to raise your hands. But have you ever served someone in hopes of getting something in return? Maybe in your workplace, you've offered to help serve someone. But in reality, your intentions were never to truly serve that person. It's more about to receive something in return for yourself. Have you ever served someone with the purpose of receiving recognition or praise from others? Perhaps your service within your workplace or even here in this church was intended to get recognition for yourself, to to have the spotlight put on you, to receive accolades and praises, and in many cases, to earn a title for yourself. Or do you fall into this category of not serving others at all? When opportunities arise to serve, you just sit back and you let others fill the positions because, you know, you you don't want to be troubled. You may have convinced yourself that you're not serving anyone, but in reality, the person you are serving is yourself. Now, for being honest with ourselves, I think we've all been guilty of these, these things, right? Seeking our own interests first, haven't we? We've been motivated to serve ourselves before serving others. And when we examine what the root cause of serving ourselves is, we find it's sinful pride. It's selfishness. So can someone truly say that they love Christ Jesus and yet seek to serve themselves first? Is it possible to have two masters that we serve? Jesus taught that we cannot have two masters. If you open your Bibles with me to Matthew 6, if you spent any time reading the Gospel of Matthew, you know that this setting here in chapter 6 is the uh, Christ is giving his greatest sermon Sermon on the Mount to the disciples in the crowd. He's teaching them of how they are to live unto him. Look with me in Matthew 6, 24. Matthew 6, 24 says, what, is, what does Jesus say about serving two masters? He says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Now, keep a bookmark here. We'll come back to this text in a bit, but I want you to see and understand what is being said here, okay? What what Jesus is saying here is we cannot be infatuated with treasures and riches over him. We cannot serve idols of our hearts and say we are serving him. No, Jesus says, he he says we can only serve one master. And it's either we're serving Jesus or we're serving our sin. You see, we're, we're all created to serve. God has designed men and women to serve To better understand what Christian service is, we must ask ourselves a simple but weighty question, 
Who do we serve? Who do we serve? So how do you determine which master you serve? Well, we have to examine our motivations for service. This means we really have to perform an, an open-heart surgery tonight on ourselves, right? We're, we're, we're going to be heart surgeons, okay? We're, we're going to examine our hearts and ask ourselves this question, which master do I serve? Are you serving the Savior or are you serving sin? Let's look at the first matter that you can serve, and that is serving your sin. The Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians writes about two motives to abstain from that are marks of someone who's in love with themselves over loving Jesus. There are two motives that you are serving sin. Turn with me, if you would, to Philippians 2. Philippians 2. Paul writing this wonderful letter to the church in Philippi. Verse 3, Philippians 2, verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Let's pause right there. What does Paul say? He says, do nothing, which is Paul's negative command to be what? Do not be selfish and have empty conceit. Don't be selfish. Don't be conceited. Don't be boastful in yourself. Let's examine that, that, that selfishness, that self-ambition. That, that, that's one of the first sinful motives of someone who is serving sin, and that's selfish ambition. What is selfish ambition? The Greek meaning for the word self-ambition means the seeking of followers and adherents by means of gifts. It's a person who seeks personal advantage and gain regardless of the effects it has on others. I mean, think about that for a moment. It's caring solely about yourself and no one else. It means that you, your wants and your needs are far more important than everyone else. And it doesn't matter how far it reaches and affects other people. It's really about what I want, what pleases me. It's being partial to people. Maybe like not serving someone or including someone in a, in a group in an outing because you just don't like that person, believing they bring no benefit to you or the group. You know, what are the effects of being self-centered? Well, you become short-tempered with others and start arguments with others as you grow angry and frustrated with them. And, you know, they're just not doing what you wanted them to do. You know, later in this same book of Philippians, Paul addresses a, a dispute, quarrel between two sisters, Yodia and Syntyche. It's unclear what was the cause of their disagreement, but they were clearly disgruntled and it was a, a serious enough issue that it got to Paul. It causes division in the group. 
You know, you begin to start blaming others around you when you seek your own needs before others. You know, I played baseball for most of my young childhood and into my young adult life. So I had an opportunity to play with lots of different teams, lots of really good teams and lots of really bad teams. And I often had this problem when I was younger. It was called pistol fingers. Some of you have probably never heard of this, but pistol fingers. What, what is pistol fingers? Well, pistol fingers is it's a selfish person's favorite thing to do. They, you know, you, you say, you know, well, my team is doing really good. You know, we're, we've got a good winning streak. Maybe we're undefeated. Man, it's, it's me. It's because of me. I'm, I'm you know, batting great. I'm, I'm seeing the ball well. I'm playing well in the field. It's me. I'm the MVP. But what about when things aren't going so well and start losing? It's these guys, right? That's pistol fingers. You're the problem. I'm the solution. It's a selfish person's favorite thing to do. You see, when you serve your sinful desires like self-ambition, you don't care about serving others because it's all about what you want and people serving you. Your pride and self-centeredness stands at the root of this sin and our deeds of the flesh and are not from heaven. James, the half-brother of Christ, says this. He understood the source and effects of selfish ambition. He writes in James 3, 14 through 16, he says, but if you have bitter jealousy and, there's that word, selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not which comes down from above, it's not from heaven, it's from who? He says it's from earthly, natural, demonic. It's earthly, natural, and demonic. Verse 16, for where jealousy and self-ambition exists, there's what? There's two things, disorder and every evil thing. I think that about sums up sin, all sin. Disorder and every evil thing. You know, James is saying self-serving is not from God. It's from Satan. It's evil. It disrupts your life. It erodes you and, you, and your life becomes ruined from it. You know, when you're too busy serving yourself and caring for your needs, you're, you're, you're sinning against the holy God when you do so. In fact, it, you're guilty of exalting yourself above God and making yourself more important than he is. The first motive you're serving sin is it's self-ambition, but now let's look back at Philippians 2. Philippians 2, 3. The second motivation we find, he writes, is empty glory. Paul says, do nothing from selfishness or empty glory. Some of you may have empty conceit in your Bibles. He's saying, don't serve for an empty glory. 
service and good deeds to gain recognition and acclaim from your peers or your leaders, that's empty conceit. To seek the praises from man, that's empty glory. Empty conceit leads to arrogance. It becomes that you're boastful then of oneself. You become entitled and it's prideful and you feel like I need to take all the credit because let's be honest, it was me that was really involved here. It's what the Bible calls being seen as wise in your own estimation. It's believing that your ideas are always better than everyone else's. It's a a desire to be seen as better than others around you, exalting yourself. And is that the motivation for why you serve? Truly ask yourselves, is that the motivation for why you serve? Do you serve others at home or perhaps at work so that you can receive praises for what you do? You know, maybe you serve here in ministries at Countryside for the sole reason so that you can gain recognition amongst the church and find favor from others here. You know, it's hypocritical to believe that you are truly serving others if your motivation is skewed to serve only your sin. Your motivation to serve is wrong because you've elected to serve the wrong motivator. Jesus warned against people seeking their own self-glory in the Bible. If you've saved that bookmark in Matthew 6, let's go back to Matthew 6. Jesus again is teaching the apostles and the large crowd here. And Jesus is teaching what the Pharisees are guilty of here. Look at these striking examples he gives to us starting in verse one. He writes, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. See, Jesus is saying, stop pretending to be a righteous person. Stop being a fraudulent Christian in front of your friends and family because you do not have the reward of salvation which comes from the Father. Verse 2, he says, so when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets so that they may be honored by men. That's that empty glory. Truly, I say to you, they have the reward in full. Verse 3, but when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in secret and your father who sees what is being done in secret will reward you. You see, Jesus is saying, don't draw attention to yourself when you give or when you serve. You know, don't give to the poor and then immediately take a selfie with the person and post it on the internet so that you can get a bunch of likes on your posts. You know, unfortunately, that's far too common in this world today, isn't it? I mean, we can hop on social media, whatever platform you use, and we can see that happen too often. 
Jesus says, no, don't make yourself out to be a hypocrite. Verse 5, he says, when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. See, even in prayer we can be guilty of drawing attention and personal glory for ourselves, right? You know, perhaps when you're praying in a group setting, are you too busy thinking of how are you going to outdo the previous person that's prayed and, you know, what big words am I going to throw out there that makes me sound like I'm, you know, really knowledgeable, really smart? Jesus says, no, don't do that. Pray with a humble heart. He goes on in verse 16 through 18, talking about when, whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they'll be noticed by men when they are fasting. He says, truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. But what do you do when, when you fast? Anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. You see, these acts of giving to the poor and praying and fasting, these are, these are all acts of worship that happen that we should really be rendering to God. And yet they become the acts of self-righteousness far too often. You know, when you're motivated to live for yourself, you begin to believe that you stand at the center of which the world and all the things revolve around, right? You're no different than these Pharisees and Sadducees that crucified Christ, that Jesus warned against. You become guilty as they are. You know, the Pharisees loved being held in such a high regard. They were motivated for attention. They had the high praise. They had all the titles and the accolades. They were motivated to receive personal glory, motivated by their piety and to be seen as better than the rest of the bunch. And when the first sign of all that had obtained was, was that they had, all that was being threatened by Jesus, what did they, what did they do? They, they went as far as to seek to kill Christ. Selfish ambition and empty glory are just two motives of someone who is a servant to sin. But they're also the marks of someone who is spiritually dead. Oops, there we go. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is what? Death. I love this great quote from a South African pastor of the late 19th century, Andrew Murray. He says this making, uh, regarding the makeup of selfishness and empty glory. He says, we, we have within us a self that has its poison from Satan, from hell, and yet we cherish and nourish it. What do we not do to please self and nourish self? And we make the devil within us strong. Look at your own life. What are the works of hell? 
they are chiefly these three, self-will, self-trust, and self-exaltation. Listen, if you're motivated by these things, if you're motivated by self-ambition and will and self-trust, self-exaltation, then eternal death is what awaits you. The judgment of God awaits you. We've learned what the two motives are of someone that serves sin. They're motivated by self-ambition and empty conceit. But, but let's now shift our focus, okay? Let's now look at the character of someone that serves the Savior. Someone that serves the Savior. Look back at Philippians 2. Look at what Paul says in the last part of verse 3 into verse 4. This is, this is the prescription for someone who does not want to serve their sin. He, he says here, but with humility of mind. In your Bibles, if you have a pen or highlighter, mark that, humility of mind. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. See, Paul is giving a clear command for us to put off those sinful motivations like selfishness and empty conceit. He says, put those to to death and put on the righteous trait of humility. Humility of mind, it's the absolute opposite of self-ambition. You know, it's serving your coworkers or your roommates and not expecting anything in return. It's encouraging those within the church that are difficult personalities to deal with. It's regarding others more important than yourselves. Humility of mind is the foundation of Christian service in the church, is it not? And you know, the great news is that we don't, we don't have to imagine what that model of humility looks like. We don't have to come up with this concept of, well, how, how does that look like to be humble in service? You know, all we have to do is just turn our eyes to Christ, right? He's perfectly modeled humility for us in the scriptures, I mean, look down page, uh, in Philippians 2. Look down the page at verse 5. Paul says Christ performed the ultimate act of humility. He says in verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who did what? What, what did Christ do? Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Take a moment to think about that. This is Christ 
who is the Son of God, willingly comes to this earth to put on flesh and become the incarnate Christ. He leaves the throne of heaven to come to a sin world, a sinful world, to put on flesh. And so he willingly comes. And he knows that there's destruction and there's pain and there's suffering and yet he still chooses to come. Not only does he become a man and dwells on this earth, but he lives his life perfectly for over 30 years. Never once does he fall into the temptations of sin. And what was this all for? Why, why would God do so? It's for his divine purpose to go to the cross and be put to death for your sins and mine. Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves. Man, are, are we ready for that? Do we have that willingness to be humble? Jesus Christ, the Son of Man and Son of God, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, there are three ways that we see humility modeled by Jesus here in this particular selected passage of Philippians 2, 5 through 8. You see that he does it willingly. He does it sacrificially. And he does it obediently. So, you see, there's a, there's a willingness to serve. He does it sacrificially by giving himself as a sin offering. And he does it all in complete obedience to the Father's will. And why? Why, why would God, why would Christ do this? He does it for his, his love for us. He does it for, his, for him to receive the glory. But he does it for his love for us. See, love is the foundation of which humility is built upon. You know, there are many things that I love about countryside. But one of the things that I'm so grateful for is the many ministry leaders who commit themselves to serving with that same attitude that was within Christ. That same attitude, that, that willingness, that being sacrificial and being obedient to see that they are coming to serve the people of God. You know, you don't have to look too far. Just simply look at the couple leader groups here and see that modeled every Wednesday and throughout the week. And why do they continually come? Why, why do these ministry leaders, these couple leaders, why do they continue to come week after week to serve in the ministry? Why do they come? I mean, the food's a, a great incentive, but it's not that purpose. They come because of their love for God and their outpouring love for you. That is why they serve. 
And that's the attitude we must have as believers when we consider the essential of service. If you're a believer here tonight in the Lord Jesus Christ, you, did you know that you've been, you've been given not only the, the gift of grace for salvation, but you've been given a special gift in this to serve? Turn back to 1 Peter 4.10. That was our, that was our uh, theme verse for the lesson. It says that as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Each one has received a special gift. And there's a multitude of gifts that God grants to believers. Here's a brief list to, to look at to show the various gifts that God bestows upon believers. You can see that some of the gifts are marked in red here. It's because those are temporal gifts. Those are gifts that no longer exist in today because they were only awarded to the apostles and the last apostle that passed was John. So those gifts do not exist any longer. But because we have God's word, we no longer have the need for a new revelation or for uh, Proof, which is why temporary gifts have since passed. Now, on the other hand, the gifts that are marked in black, as you see, those are spiritual gifts that we still have to this day, and those gifts were called permanent gifts. You know, when you look at that list of permanent gifts, know that God grants each of us individually these gifts pertaining to his will. That means that you could have one gift or an array of giftedness, and why do you think that is? Why do you think God grants each believer in the church with different giftedness? Well, think about this. You know, maybe you're watching the Dallas Cowboys playing football on TV, and on the offense, you saw 11 quarterbacks lined up. I mean, do you think they would fare well against the opposing team? Eh, probably, but not too bad. I mean, they're, they're going to get pummeled. I mean, they got to... They don't have any big guys on the front line to play offensive line or have a, you know, fast running backs or tall wide receivers. No, instead they're a collective team, right? Collective team of different talents and skills that when working together with that which they've been skilled with, they, they do really well. There's a cohesion when each player plays their part for the greater goal. And the same principle applies really in the church. You see, God grants us his, his, his special giftedness to serve each other. That's why Peter says to employ the service, meaning go and minister to others with the giftedness you have received. See, when believers exercise their giftedness in the church according to what each person has been given, we see the church function much like a clock. The timepiece can have between 140 to 200 different components in it. And each part and component fits and works together for the purpose for the watch to tell time. That means a watchmaker must carefully place each cog and spring and screw in the proper place to work together 
and make the watch operate. And that's exactly what the Lord has done with his church, with his local church. He's given each believer a a role of service in the church, carefully placing each one exactly where they belong according to his will. Our service benefits others and we benefit greatly from them. And the purpose is for what? Why does God grant believers serving gifts and teaching gifts in the church? If you're still in 1 Peter, look at verse 11. The following verse says, Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do, do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. For what purpose? Here it is. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom glory, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is why we would serve. That's the purpose why we use the giftedness in the church. That is a purpose that should motivate you and I with opportunities we have to serve in the body. I mean, think with me for a minute. You know, when we use our giftedness to serve one another in the church, we're not just serving the body of believers here. We're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a great, great privilege that is for the believer to serve our Lord. I mean, after reading Philippians 2 and seeing what he has done, why would I not want to go and serve him faithfully? If you're a believer here today, wondering what are some ways that you can start serving, consider this. Here's just a brief list of different ministries that we have here at Countryside. Uh, We have, of course, children's ministries, which always need help, students with the youth and college. We have care ministries. We have church life. We have music and media, outreach. We have a ministry fair that takes place every August where we host and put on display all the different ministries that are here at Countryside. It gives you an opportunity to interact with those who are already serving in those ministries to learn more about how can you be useful to the body. Most of these ministries require that you complete the partner's one-on-one program. But however, most of them are just requiring that you commit yourselves to come and serve faithfully. You know, when you serve in the church in a Christ-like manner, what you do for younger generations is you're giving them a living example to emulate after. You know, the, the younger generations here that observe you on Sundays throughout the week. They see that. They see you living a Christ-like example and say, man, that is a person I want to model myself after. I mean, did Paul not say the same thing? Model yourselves after me as I model myself after Christ. Consider the influence you have with your testimony of the gospel. There's many great opportunities to serve practically in and out of the church. 
As we conclude our time tonight, I want us to really reconsider that iconic quote from JFK. But I want to rephrase it in this way. Don't ask what your church can do for you, but ask what can you do for your church? Take time this week to examine your heart and motives and ask yourselves, who do I serve? If I can only serve one master, as we saw tonight in Matthew 6, as Jesus points out, if I can only serve one master, who do I choose to serve? Am I serving myself, my wants and my needs? Am I serving my sin? Or is my motive to serve God faithfully? To serve Him and only Him? You know, if you're not in Christ tonight and you're thinking, man, you know what? I kind of enjoy serving myself. I enjoy being the recipient of being served. Paul continues in Philippians 2, verse 10. We'll start in verse 9. He says this, For this reason also God highly exalted him, the Son, meaning Christ, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that, verse 10, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow. And of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, verse 11, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you're not humbled now, you will be. You know, the good news is, friends, is that we don't, we've been set free from the bondage of sin. We've been set free by the blood of Christ. Because Jesus came to live that perfect life that we could never live, die on the cross, uh, bear punishment for our sins, and resurrect on the third day. Because of that, because of what Jesus Christ has done, we are no longer bound to sin. You have freedom. There is victory in Jesus Christ. But you see, simply believing the truth is not enough. Not believing simply that Jesus has done those things is not enough. If, if the Lord has softened you to the reality of your sinful motivation, he says to you, repent. Repent and believe in me. Follow him Serve him. Live for him. And for some of you in this room, we've placed your hope and trust in Christ. It's amazing. and It's such a wonderful encouragement to see many of you serving already faithfully in this church. I rejoice with the Lord in knowing that you're no longer motivated for self, but motivated for the Lord. Continue on. Keep serving faithfully. And if you're wondering, you know, I know I'm a believer and I'm just, you know, well, I don't know what my, my giftedness is. I don't know what to do. 
Well, it's not a quiz you can take online to figure that out. You just need to start serving somewhere. Plenty of opportunities to just jump in. But you just got to jump in to figure it out. Be a model of servant-heartedness. Serve with humility of mind. Do it willingly. Do it sacrificially. Be obedient. And do it with remembrance of our purpose. The reason why we do what we do. So that God the Father would be glorified through his Son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent to be the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, just begging for forgiveness. Forgiveness for our selfish motivations. Forgiveness, Lord, that we've sought our own interests first for empty conceit, for our own ambition. Lord, forgive us. Lord, may we turn our hearts to you in those times where we are tempted to want to do so. Lord, I pray for each individual here that still serves themselves and have not served you. Lord, I pray for those hearts to be softened to the gospel message, to see the humility which was displayed through your son at the cross and at the resurrection. Father, what a wonderful privilege it is that we as believers have that we can come to a church here in South Lake, Texas and to serve freely, to serve your people, but ultimately to serve you, Lord. We just pray that as we seek opportunities to do so and serve in this, this church and even outside of this church, Lord, that we would do so faithfully do it with the humble heart and mind and that we would seek to give you honor and praise in all things. Father, I just commit the rest of our evening to you, Lord. I ask that you would bless our conversation as we look forward to our discussion time. Lord, we just pray that our hearts are challenged, challenged by your word, challenged to seek to honor you in obedience. Father, again, we thank you for Christ, for his sacrifice and his example of servant-heartedness. May we just seek to strive for that each and every day of our lives on this earth. We thank you again. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.